Matthew chapter 12, verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples were hungry and began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. But he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? Yet I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Now we are in that section of the Gospel of Matthew, which is thinking about, as is appropriate for a gospel about a king, it's thinking about authority, but specifically the delegated authority of the Lord Jesus that he gave to his apostles. As he sent them out as missionaries, he gave them authority, power to cast out demons, power to heal, and certainly, most importantly, to preach the gospel of the kingdom, to say that the kingdom of God was nearing. But now, chapters 11 and 12 tell us about the situation that followed. The things the Lord Jesus explained in chapter 10 are now being lived out, so to speak, or demonstrated in the experience of the Lord and his disciples. And as we saw Sunday night in Matthew chapter 11, there was very real opposition that came to them as they brought this message of the kingdom to the nation of Israel. Rather than the king coming, as someone might have expected, to his own people and them receiving him, what he found was just what John summarizes in the Gospel of John 1. It says, and if we render it a little more closely to how the Greek does it, it says he came to his own things. In other words, this is the Lord coming to his own creation, coming to the nation that he chose to be his people, coming to the place where he determined he would put his name. And yet, he came into his own things, it says, and his own people received him not. So even though they had all of these centuries and millennia of types and shadows and prophecies saying that Messiah King would come and rule over them and indeed save them, when the Lord Jesus came, he found a lot of pushback from the nation of Israel. He found a lot of opposition. And this, of course, had a spiritual source to it, as we'll see tonight. As the disciples and he were going along, the Lord Jesus made this wonderful claim that no one could know the Father except the one that the Son revealed him to. And in the very next breath, the Lord Jesus said, Come unto me. So it's wonderful to know that, yes, the knowledge of God exclusively resides in the Lord Jesus. Only by having the Lord Jesus can one know God. But the Lord Jesus then turns and invites people to come to him. 
with absolutely no qualifications whatsoever. You don't have to be a certain race. You don't have to be a certain socioeconomic level. You don't have to be a certain citizen of a certain country. You don't have to be a graduate of a prestigious university. You can come as you are to the Lord Jesus. And he says he will give you rest. I guess there is a prerequisite. He says, all you who are burdened and heavy laden. But if we understand our condition as human beings correctly, that's all of us. Weighed down with sin, burdened, pushed down. And the Lord Jesus says, come unto me and you'll find rest to your souls. Take my yoke upon you, he says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now I mentioned Sunday night that the rabbis of the day would talk about people becoming their disciples. And they would say, this person has taken my yoke upon their neck. This person has taken the yoke of the Rabbi Akiva or the Rabbi Shama or whomever it may have been. Whereas the Lord Jesus promises that his yoke is easy and his burden is light, the yoke of first century Judaism, indeed, the yoke of all man-made religion, because every religion that does not base itself on the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ in his holy word, and that includes the whole Bible, every religion that doesn't base itself on that becomes burdensome, becomes counterproductive, will keep us from God, will not lead us to the truth. And to illustrate that, the next story that comes about is this one that we've just read in Matthew chapter 12, where the disciples are going through the fields and they're picking the heads of grain. Now that might sound a bit strange to you. I mean, after all, we wouldn't just walk through Publix and just start grabbing food, you know, and just start eating it, would we? Well, I was with one preacher one time and he went to the deli counter with me and, well, it was never to be forgotten. But you can ask me after the meeting about that story. I'll tell you if you want to know what that was all about. But in any case, we might listen to this story and we might say, that's kind of weird. Why are these disciples grabbing these heads of grain as they go through the fields? Whereas in the Bible itself, the Lord had made provision for this back in the book of Deuteronomy. That if you were hungry and you came into your neighbor's field, you could take enough to satisfy that immediate hunger. Now, they were very careful. They weren't to take a big tub, you know, and just start filling it with their neighbor's grain. But they were able to take of that food and eat it. But really the problem lay in the fact that it touched on one of the really bad commandments that was maybe uppermost in the minds of the legal religionists of the day. And that was, it happened on the Sabbath day. Now, the Sabbath day to the Jews, of course, we call it Saturday, but more technically, it was from Friday evening at sundown, in our way of reckoning things, to Saturday evening at sundown. And they're very rigorous about observing the Sabbath, even today in Israel. So if you stay in certain hotels that try to observe some of the rabbinic injunctions, if you're in some of these hotels in Jerusalem, they have Sabbath features on their elevator, where because you push the button on the elevator, that's analogous to kindling a fire, which the sages of Judaism said you shouldn't do on the Sabbath day, and so the elevator stops at every floor. 
and woe betide you if your hotel room's on the 11th floor. You're stopping at everyone going up or going down. You might as well take the stairs. They're pretty serious about it. You can get in a lot of trouble disregarding it, even if you're not particularly religious. Well, in the Lord Jesus' day, it was just like that too, that they were just watching and waiting for somebody to violate the Sabbath. And now they said, here it was. Here are these men, the disciples of Jesus. They're going through this field. And verse 1 says they're hungry. And they began to pluck the heads of grain and to eat. And the Pharisee said, verse 2, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Presumably they wouldn't have bothered them on other days of the week because, as I said, the law made provision for them to do this. But the problem was it was on the Sabbath. Whereupon the Lord did what he so often did in the scriptures, particularly here in Matthew. He cited the Bible. He quoted scripture. And he said, verse 3, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Now you remember that story, that David was fleeing from Saul, and he came to Nob, to the city of the priests, and he went there before the priest, and he said, do you have any bread here? I'm on a secret mission. You know, it's all very top secret and need to know and your eyes only kind of stuff. And well, I'd love to disclose it to you, but it's above your pay grade, old boy. You know, top secret and all that kind of thing. And uh, oh, the high priest said, yes, enough said. Well, yes, we do have bread here, but it's bread that only the priests are supposed to eat. It was show bread which had sat out on the table of showbread for seven days before the Lord. And then after that, it was given to the priests and their families to eat. Now, technically, David wasn't a priest. He wasn't from the right family, was he? He wasn't a descendant of Aaron. Nor was he from the right tribe. He wasn't a descendant of Levi. He was a descendant of Judah. So you might say, well, what right did David have to take that bread and give it to his cohort anyway. Well, the Lord Jesus says here a principle that God set forth there that when there was a higher need, ceremonial law could be set aside. In other words, here was David, God's chosen man, fleeing for his life, and he broke a ceremonial commandment. Technically, he wasn't allowed to eat that bread. But the Lord did not consider that a real breaking of the law because he was on the king's business. He was doing God's will. And his need absolutely determined that he should take of that showbread, much like the disciples in this current situation. And he said, uh, furthermore, in verse 5, Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? The priests don't take the Sabbath off. In fact, for a priest, maybe the Sabbath was busier than other days in certain respect. They still offered the morning and the evening sacrifice. They still went about doing their duties, even on the Sabbath day. And God did not reckon that as ordinary work. In one sense, yes, they profaned the Sabbath. That is, they broke the ceremonial law concerning it. 
but they really weren't sinning against God by bringing work into a, an area that God didn't want it. In other words, the principle is here that if someone is serving the Lord legitimately and the human need brings them into conflict with this ceremonial aspect of the law, the ceremonial part of the law was what was to give and the need of the person doing the will of God was to trumpet. Now, verse 7. But if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. Now, this is exactly why God gave the law, after all. Not because God was mean, not because God was cruel, not because God enjoys inflicting suffering on people. That is not why God gives commandments. God gives commandments, after all, the scripture tells us, that aren't burdensome. No, God's heart is filled with mercy. In other words, compassion on those who have need. And so the law wasn't meant to make our lives more onerous, more difficult, or even to rob us of what we had legitimate need of. It was made so that men might keep in mind the very character of God. And he said they had forgotten a key part of the law, that God wants mercy. In other words, that it's more important to get a hold of the heart of God and to know what God desires, such as mercy, and not just blindly carry through with the ceremony. Now, haven't we seen that so much in Christendom? That there are plenty of organizations and entities and even places calling themselves churches that scrupulously have ceremonies that they would tell us come from Scripture. The Lord's Supper, for example. And they would be very careful to have some form of the Lord's Supper. Now, never mind the fact that some of these places don't teach correct things about the Lord's Supper. Let's just say for a moment that they have the Lord's Supper every week. But you know, they're so scrupulous about keeping that ceremony, and yet they don't care whether the people who fill their churches are really born again or not, really have a relationship with God. In fact, the very clerics who administer those ceremonies to people in many cases, don't know the God whom they're professing to serve. The point is, you can get so hung up on a point of ceremony, on a symbol, so to speak, that you lose the point of what that symbol is trying to convey. That's not to say symbols aren't important. The Bible teaches the Lord's Supper, doesn't it? But the Lord's Supper itself, as a symbol, is supposed to bring us back time and time again to the Lord Jesus and to his death and to all that the Lord has accomplished for us and to, in fact, remind us that Jesus is our Lord. So that week after week, we're examining ourselves and saying, now am I living as if Jesus is Lord? Am I bearing in mind what the Lord Jesus did for me? Or do I come on Sunday and am I just reminded of him? It's sad, you know, when so many can be taken up with mere externals and lose the power of the symbol. And such was it in the days of the Lord Jesus here. But here the Lord Jesus establishes it very clearly, verse 8. He says, for the Son of Man, that's the Lord's preferred title when referring to himself, 
a messianic title that comes from the book of Daniel. For the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. In other words, when it comes down to the Lord Jesus and his disciples, the Lord Jesus is the one who gave the Sabbath in the first place. The Lord Jesus is the great judge of the universe. He's going to judge the world in righteousness one day, Acts chapter 17 tells us. The Father has committed all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son even as they honor the Father, John 5 says. And that one who is the judge and the lawgiver, the very creator of morality and right and wrong, has a right to say of something like this Sabbath, of what is actually breaking it and what is actually keeping it. Now that wasn't the end of the controversy. The next story also deals with the Sabbath. Verse 9, Now when he had departed from there, he went into their synagogue, and behold there, there was a man who had the withered hand. And they asked him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Now notice what Matthew explains here, that they might accuse him. There are people who ask questions who aren't seekers after the truth. That is why the book of Proverbs says, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him. And that is why it says, is it immediately before or immediately after? I forget the order. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own conceits. You say, that sounds contradictory. Am I to answer the fool or am I not to answer the fool? Well, it all depends on context. If it's a situation where you've got to uphold the truth before other people and show what is right, you have to answer that foolishness. But there comes a point in time, and there are situations, where somebody asks you a question merely to be argumentative or belligerent or to waste your time. And there, you have to be wise in discerning which the case is, whether or not to cut them off or to continue it. You remember when the dialogue of the Lord Jesus with the woman at the well in John 4, the Lord would answer her questions, wouldn't he? But many times people ask the Lord Jesus questions, and he was very short with them, because they were just playing around. So here they ask the Lord Jesus a question, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Now their decision was, no, it wasn't lawful to heal on the Sabbath. But here's what the Lord Jesus says, verse 11. What man is there among you who has one sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it and lift it out? <laughs> I tell you, all of the God-fearing shepherds in that day, or at least rabbinically observant shepherds of that day, if their sheep falls in a pit on the Sabbath day, they're going to say, well, Lord, I had to prefer the, pr preserve the life of the sheep. I couldn't say, just wait there, you know, till Sunday, and then I'll pull you out. That would be no good. It would be dead by then. So I had to pull it out to save the life. <laughs> and they could understand that that was good business sense. But look at verse 12. Of how much more value then is a man than a sheep? Now that point may be questioned in our day and age. Because people have such a skewed concept of where life comes from to begin with. And therefore, they're not able to properly evaluate life. So there are people that actually would say to us, you know, the animals are of equal value as the human beings. 
But the Lord Jesus says, no, that's not so. It's evident by the way he phrases this. It's a rhetorical question of how much more value is a man than a sheep. (laughs) Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And rather than just leave that as a hypothetical point, here's the mercy of the Lord. The Lord who desires mercy and not sacrifice. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and it was restored as whole as the other. Now, what did that miracle accomplish? Did people all gather around and say, let me shake your hand, my friend. That hand that used to be withered, but now it works just great. I want to rejoice. In fact, give me a high five, my brother. Did anybody do that for that man? We don't read of anybody exulting over what the Lord had done for that man. It says, verse 14, Then the Pharisees went out, and plotted against him how they might destroy him. In fact, in the parallel passage in Mark chapter 3, we're told there that they went out and plotted with the Herodians, people that weren't even really that religious. They were more political operators and hangers-on at court, people that hitched their wagon to Herod and to that evil regime there, and they made common cause with them to plot the murder of the Lord Jesus. Now, that shows you the true extent of somebody's religion, doesn't it? I mean, we have people in the world today that will tell us how religious they are, how much they love their God, how devoted they are to him, how they never fail to pray to him, how they never fail to do certain things he commands, and yet they'd say it was righteous to go out and commit murder in the name of that God. And you say to yourself, how does that follow, you know? How do you reconcile those things? But that's what man's religion does to you. That's what dead formalism does to a person. It doesn't give you a right valuation of life, nor of the mercy that God wants. It just makes you cruel. But Jesus, when he knew it, verse 15 says, Jesus withdrew from there, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all. So not only does the Lord withdraw so that they can't carry out their plot then and there, it wasn't his time yet, the Lord Jesus withdraws and he continues healing. The Lord wasn't cowed by their opposition. He wasn't afraid. He didn't stop doing what the Father wanted him to do. But he warned them not to make him known because the Lord Jesus wasn't a sensationalist. We see this over and over in the Gospels. He wasn't of the mind that any publicity is good publicity. He was coming specifically to reveal the Father, to show what God is like, to show what his kingdom is like. And so it wasn't about indiscriminately gathering attention to himself. It was about fulfilling what his Father had said and even predicted of him in the prophets. For next we get a quotation from Isaiah Verse 18, behold my servant whom I've chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will declare justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and smoking flax he will not quench till he sends forth justice to victory and in his name Gentiles will trust. Now, the thrust of that quotation in context seems to be emphasizing for us the gentleness of the Lord Jesus. 
there are passages in the Old Testament prophets which could have been produced that would emphasize how Messiah is going to come one day and put down the evil ones. Who shall abide the day of his coming? And who may stand when he appeareth? You know, things like that. For he's like a refiner's fire. Now I'm getting too much of the Messiah in my head, so I'll quit with those quotations. But this quotation emphasizes the other side of the Lord Jesus, doesn't it? The side that was exhibited at his first coming. Not coming to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved, as John 3 puts it. Stressing the gentleness of the Lord. Not crying out in the streets. Not causing a disturbance. Our Lord Jesus was not an angry young man. He was not a revolutionary who was trying to overthrow everything going on in this world. He wasn't an agitator. There are people that have come along and they've tried to point to the Lord Jesus as the prototype of agitation and disturbance and making trouble and making a row that wasn't the Lord Jesus at all. Did he come into conflict? Most certainly he did. We've seen it tonight already in our passage. But it wasn't because of him and his attitude and the way he conducted himself. It was because he stood for the truth and people were opposing the truth. Now Peter makes that point in 1 Peter 2, doesn't he? When he says, don't let any of you suffer as an evildoer. Because if you're buffeted for your faults, what profit is it to you? So it's no good me driving 90 miles an hour down Pines Boulevard. Anyone listening, not that I would. But no good me driving 90 miles an hour down Pines Boulevard and getting pulled over by the police. And I say, you're persecuting me because I'm a Christian. No, he's not. He's pulling me over because I'm doing like 50 miles over the speed limit. You know, there's no point in suffering for something stupid or unlawful that you do. But Peter says, if any man suffer as a Christian, this is thankworthy before God. Now, our Lord was always the latter, never the former. People couldn't look at the Lord and justly say, oh, that guy's a troublemaker. Oh, that guy's just interested in making problems for us. I stress this because, you know, Christians have a reputation for that in this world, especially as there's been such a push on Christians in politics. A lot of people get the idea Christians are just against everything. Well, what they should come away with from real interaction with us is that we are gentle people, people that aren't interested in being unmerciful to others. People that don't want to be cruel to other people. People that aren't hateful, but people that love other people. And yes, we stand for the truth. And yes, we emphasize holiness. And yes, we can't compromise with sin. And yes, we denounce sin and call sin, sin. But we also preach the love of the Lord Jesus and his salvation. That's what they should come away thinking about us. Now they brought to him, verse 22, one who was demon-possessed, blind, and mute. This is going to be a bridge to the next group of stories about the opposition. The first group of stories were about opposition over the Sabbath. We're going to now get into opposition over spiritual powers. And the Lord Jesus 
heals this man. And you notice the multitudes in verse 23 were amazed. And they said, could this be the son of David? That's a messianic title. So they're beginning to look at the signs and they're getting the point. This could be the Messiah. Now, when the Pharisees heard it, they said, this fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. Now, isn't it interesting? They didn't deny that the Lord Jesus was doing something supernatural. But what they denied was that it was of God. They said, you know, the origin here is demonic, which the Lord Jesus showed that that, first of all, was illogical. Because that would be tantamount to saying there's a civil war in Satan's kingdom. If Satan's casting out Satan, that'd be rather counterproductive, wouldn't it? Be a really stupid thing even for Satan to do. But uh, the Lord Jesus then makes a further point, verse 27. If I am casting out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast out demons? I mean, the fact that someone casts out demons, you don't automatically look at them and say you're of the devil because you're casting out demons. Because they had people in their own rabbinic schools coming out of their own seminaries, so to speak, that claimed to cast out demons. And he says, well, are they doing it in the power of Satan too? See, the Lord Jesus, he was really wise in dealing with these people. But he makes the case further. He says, verse 28, but if I cast out demons by the spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder the strong man? Let him first, unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. If I come to Hulk Hogan's house and I say to him, I want your stereo system and your flat screen TV, what do you think he's going to do to me? Probably his one hand can grab my whole head, you know. And it is maybe my largest body part, I don't know. But still, he's a pretty big guy. He'd just pick me up by the noggin, and he'd probably plant me in the backyard somewhere, wouldn't he? You know, but if I come in, and I shoot him in the face with chloroform, and he gets knocked out on the floor, and when he comes to, I've got him handcuffed and bound by his feet. Not that I've ever fantasized about doing that and taking his stereo. <laughs> then what's he going to say? I've tied him up. I can take his goods. Well, think about that strong man, Satan. So strong that Philip Seymour Hoffman, Oscar-winning actor, millionaire, coveted apartment in the village in New York City, considered the best actor of his generation by some people. He's lying dead on the floor with a syringe in his arm. Sad, isn't it? Look at all the rock stars. Look at all the country stars. I won't be a respecter of persons. Look at all the actors and actresses. Look at the people of power in this world that Satan has totally fettered, totally shackled to lusts and sins. And at his beck and call, so to speak, you look at all those lives that he holds in the thraldom of darkness. And yet the Lord Jesus says, I'm the one who can come and I can bind him and I can plunder his goods. Indeed, Colossians 2 tells us that the Lord Jesus, having died and risen from the dead, he's triumphed over principalities and powers and made a show of them openly. Will he despoil Satan's goods? Will he despoil 
the infernal dark hosts of the universe? Of course he will. He comes to take away those prisoners. Isn't that wonderful? The power of our Lord Jesus. Not doing these things by demonic power, but the very power of the kingdom of God coming upon them. But the Lord Jesus said, Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven to man, but this, the blasphemy against the Spirit, will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For a tree is known by its fruit. Brood of vipers, how can you being evil speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things. And an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Now people talk about that as the unpardonable sin. They should think about the great pardon of God, rather. That the Lord says, all evils, all blasphemies may be forgiven of men. You know, there's not anyone we meet who's so bad a sinner that the Lord Jesus isn't able to save that person if they're willing. That's the key, isn't it? But think about these people in context. They came up close and personal to the Lord Jesus. Not only did they see the Lord Jesus, but they saw the power of the Spirit of God at work through him. And when they saw that power of the Spirit of God and they knew exactly what it was, they still denied it and tried to sidestep it with a ludicrous explanation that the Lord Jesus was doing this by Beelzebub. Now listen, God is gracious. He's long-suffering, not willing that any should perish. And who knows how many times someone might hear the gospel before they see, hey, that's talking about me. Hey, I'm a sinner. Hey, it's for me that Christ died on the cross. I need to repent and turn to him in faith and trust him to save me. I need to ask him to save me from my sin. And as someone was telling me at the soccer outreach the other night, the average person, they said, hears the gospel 150 times before they believe. You know, you don't know, do you, where a person is at? You don't know how many times they've heard it. But having said that, there is a point of no return, isn't there? I mean, if you see the power of the Lord to change lives, if you, even as Hebrews 6 says, taste of the powers of the world to come, and you still turn away from that, there's nothing else God can offer you. There's no plan B salvation for such a person. To look at the Lord Jesus performing the works that he did on that scene at that time in that place and still attribute it to the devil, the Lord Jesus said, that won't be forgiven you. You've put yourself on the path of no return. So it's not an easy thing to commit an unpardonable sin. 
in the end, the only sin that's unpardonable is continued, inveterate unbelief in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why if you hear his voice, the scripture says, today, harden not your hearts. If you hear his voice, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, they went on to ask the Lord Jesus for a sign, and the Lord Jesus told them they were an evil and adulterous generation. Again, they weren't seeking signs because they wanted more information or more testimony to the truth. They were trying to see if the Lord Jesus would fail. They weren't going to be convinced no matter what. So the Lord Jesus told them that the only sign they were going to get was the sign of the prophet Jonah, which is interesting. Christianity stands or falls on the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is an incontrovertible sign. It sets forth in time and space and history the truth of who the Lord Jesus Christ is and what he has done. You think about that. They couldn't have been very impressed with this being the sign of the prophet Jonah. After all, he wasn't in their top ten list of prophets. They would say in John 7, Look and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Well, I guess they forgot old Jonah who was from Gath-Hefer in Galilee, but never mind. They didn't like Jonah. Why? Because he was the prophet to the Gentiles, that city of Nineveh and the hated Assyrian Empire. And you know, it's interesting. As you go through this passage, here's the Lord talking to the Jews, but at the same time, he's quoting scripture that talk about the effect of Messiah's kingdom, which is even going to extend to the Gentiles. All the grace of God. Men try to put it in a box. Men try to curtail the mercies of God, but they can't do it. This king will extend it all the way to the utter reaches of the earth, won't he? After he disputes with them, some of his family came, and they said, your family's outside wanting to see you. And he makes the point now, who are my mother or my brothers or my sisters? It's he who hears the word of God and does it. He, or as he says in verse 50, for whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Now, do you remember what the Lord Jesus said two chapters ago? He said that a man's foes would be those of his own household. He would say that father and son were going to put it, be put at variance, and mother and daughter. And ultimately, you would have to choose Christ, even if those nearest and dearest to you would oppose you. And here the Lord Jesus is showing, I know exactly what that's like. I have friends who, when they trusted the Lord Jesus Christ, their family threw them out and wanted nothing more to do with them. There are some families in this world that if you trust Christ, they'll have a funeral for you because you'll be like you're dead to them. There are some countries in this world where if you confess Christ, your family will be the first to deliver you up to be killed, even now, let alone what's coming in the tribulation period after the church is taken home to heaven. The Lord Jesus says, I understand all that. I had opposition from family too. And let me tell you who my real family is. It's a spiritual family. Those who do the will of God. Now in this matter of delegated authority, as we go forth with the authority of the king and as we go forth with his word, there's opposition. And why is that? Well, the section ends with chapter 13, verses 1 through 9, which I'm not going to 
expound tonight. You can breathe a sigh of relief. <laughs> but what that parable is all about is why is it that so many people hear the preaching of the word of God, the preaching of the gospel, heard the preaching of the Lord Jesus himself and didn't believe. And that parable explains to us that we're not existing in a vacuum, that it's not some kind of pure place where we are, where we can just sit here and objectively weigh the merits of what we're hearing. No, we have to be careful how we hear. Because there is an enemy of our souls who will steal away the word. There is a world that will choke it out. There are trials that will burn it out of our hearts. We have to come with a good and a prepared heart, really wanting to know the truth of God, ready to receive it and do it. And upon that ground, only one-fourth of the grounds that the Lord describes in the parable, on that ground, eternal life germinates. And even there, the fruit varies, doesn't it? Not all believers produce to the same level. We have to be careful. There's a responsibility with how we hear the word. But it's interesting. After that, there's another section, another discourse of the Lord Jesus where the disciples ask him, why are you talking in parables? And what's that parable mean anyway? And the Lord basically says, I'm revealing to you the secrets of the kingdom. Why is it that the kingdom isn't coming physically now? Why is it that there's so much opposition? Why is it that I have to come and actually be rejected and die? And why is it that right up to the end of the age, there will be false and true? There will be those who receive it and believe it, and there will be those who are pretenders, even though sometimes they may look like believers. The Lord Jesus says, there's an answer to that. Because the kingdom's in mystery form. It's being revealed. It's developing according to the stages of God's plan. And it's going to develop... And one day it's going to come physically. It's going to actually exist on this earth. When the Lord Jesus comes in his second coming to earth and establishes his millennial kingdom, it will come here physically. But even now it exists in the world, in the hearts of believers. Not like it's going to exist in the day when the Lord Jesus sits on the throne of his father David. But now in this day, like in the Lord Jesus' own day, we face opposition, we face difficulty. Not everybody believes it. In fact, it seems like most people don't believe it. We shouldn't be surprised. This is how the Lord Jesus told us it would be. But the Lord Jesus also told us that in the end, his authority will be established. In the end, he will reign as King of kings and Lord of lords. And in the meantime, we have the Lord promising to be with us even into the end of the age. And we have our spiritual family, our brothers and sisters in Christ, to help us to serve him and to use that delegated authority through the word of God to carry the word out into a lost and dying world. May God help us to do it for his glory. Father, we're thankful tonight for these dear saints. We pray for their outreaches. We pray for their individual testimonies. We thank thee for what they're doing, but we pray for more, Father. There is much untapped resource in this assembly. There are people that aren't giving their all for thee. 
and even those of us who want to give our all. Father, we fail so often, and we realize this. But we're so thankful thou art working in and through us nonetheless. We're so thankful in the end thou wilt win. We're so thankful that thy kingdom will come. Thy will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But Father, before that comes, we know that evil men and seducers will wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. We pray we wouldn't be deceived. We pray that we would hold to thy truth and that we would boldly proclaim it even as we see the day approaching. We pray this in the Lord Jesus' name. Amen.